The Secrets of Doctor Who is brought to you by the Star Quest Production Network and is made possible by our many generous patrons. If you'd like to support the podcast, please visit sqpn.com slash give. You're listening to The Secrets of Doctor Who, where we discuss everything about the hit BBC series, Doctor Who, and today we're discussing the fifth Doctor story, The King's Demons. I'm Dom Bettinelli, and joining me today on the panel is Jimmy Aiken. Hey, Jimmy. Howdy, Dom. Father Corey can't be with us this time, but he'll be back next time, I I hope. <laughs> so uh, we We're recording this well in advance, so we'll, we'll, yeah. we'll, we'll assume he'll be back. Uh, let's... Uh, I also want to tell you about another show, another show on the StarQuest Network you are sure to enjoy called The Secrets of Star Trek. Yes, The Secrets of Star Trek. There's so much going on with Star Trek and you want to check it out. You can find that wherever fine podcasts are found or at sqpn.com slash Star Trek. And I want to encourage you to make sure you follow this show, The Secrets of Doctor Who, in Apple Podcasts or Google Podcasts or Spotify, Stitcher, TuneIn, all the places, including maybe your favorite podcast app or on the StarQuest YouTube channel, where you should make sure to hit the bell to get notifications of new episodes. All right, so this time we're talking about The King's Demons, this fifth Doctor story from 1983. Jimmy, can you give us a recap of what happens in this one? This week, the fifth Doctor, Tegan, and Turlow land in England in 1215. They materialize in the middle of a jousting trial by combat being staged by King John, but King John seems remarkably friendly and hails them as his demons. It turns out that King John has been being a bully to a local lord in the countryside named Ranulf, but the Doctor realizes something is wrong because history records that on this day, King John is in London taking the Crusader's Oath, so we're dealing with an imposter king. Eventually, the king's champion is revealed to be the master, and it's part of a plot by the master to defame King John and cause an early rebellion that will prevent the signing of the Magna Carta and thus prevent the foundations of parliamentary democracy from being laid on earth. The master also plans to go to other major civilizations in the universe and undermine them too. This will cause chaos and allow him to rule. Eventually, the Doctor discovers that the Imposter King is really a shape-shifting robot named Chameleon, and he and the Master fight for psychic control of Chameleon. The Doctor wins and deprives the Master of a key element in his plan, which is now foiled. Afterwards, the newly freed Chameleon joins the TARDIS crew as the newest companion. The end. It's a quick two-parter this time mm -hmm. with the, yeah. the Fifth Doctor, uh, and... Semi-historical. <laughs> no more pure historicals left in uh, in Doctor Who after this point, I think. And, no, uh, the last one was Black Orchid, which we've already covered. Right, right. And uh, so uh, one of the things that I, I want to get your overall impression in a second, but one of the things that just occurred to me is how the Doctor seems to have all historical facts at his fingertips at all times. Like he always like he he knew off the top of his head that this was the date in which King John should be in, in London. And I just thought that was kind of, it's kind of a funny thing. It must, you know, must be a time Lord ability to know all the historical data at, at, well, at his fingertips. It, it, he, it, it's obviously a plot trope that they have to keep the show moving, but yeah. you know, it, it he doesn't <laughs> always know everything, but That's right. he, he does when he needs to, to move the plot. Or he fails to know things when he needs to fail to know things to move the plot. That's true. That that happens occasionally. So getting to overall impressions, what was your overall impression of this story? Uh, 
I liked it a lot better than I thought I would. I remember watching this. I've I've seen it before, and the last time I watched it, I remember really hating it. Um, I think I was not feeling well at the time, um, and that contributed to my dislike of it. But watching it this time, it was a lot better. Um, I do appreciate that it's it's two parts. It's not as um, tight, which makes it the equivalent length of a modern one part. You know, because these are like 20 minute episodes, 20 something minute episodes, put them together. It's the equivalent of a 44 minute episode. And um, it's not as tightly paced as a one parter would be today, but it's it's still fairly brisk. It doesn't have lots of extra padding and running around through corridors and stuff like that. I also liked um, I liked that it's more realistic about the historical period it's set in than than what you would get today. Today it would be much more slickly produced. It wouldn't have that same feel of people riding around on horses shot and or sitting in castles and, and feasting in the same realistic way. They would feel the need to jazz it up. They also would impose modern agendas on it and preach mm-hmm. to us about those agendas. Like when you, like in that Witchfinder episode of the 13th Doctor where she meets King James I. Um, that is in, insufferably preachy. But this isn't. And it even has, at one point, the phony King John asks for a lute, which is rather remarkable. And he plays the lute in front of people and sings a song. And it's a kind of... It's a praise of crusading, and he's he's singing, uh, we sing in praise of total war against the Saracen, Saracen that we abhor, and he's talking about how, in the song, about how there's nothing more glorious than to fight for the recovery of the tomb of Christ, the Son of God, and it's all very explicitly Christian, and it's also very barbaric, you know, to modern sensibilities. And it, at least to many people's modern sensibilities, and they just they just let him sing it twice. You know, um, one in one he sings it in one scene, and later he sings it as as the robot in another scene. And nobody is commenting about how horrible this is or imposing modern values on it. They're just treating this his, historical period very realistically and letting it be what it be. You know, if I contrast this with the two uh, 12th Doctor stories we just watched, the ones with set in the Viking period and the ones set in, mm-hmm. um, you know, the more modern era, the Renaissance, I guess, uh, the 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 modern Doctor Who cannot resist imposing anachronisms and, uh, you know, very, like you mentioned, not a, not even just agendas, but also just ways of speaking and slang and idiom from mm-hmm. our day, whereas they really let the people, I mean, not perfectly, uh, obviously, mm-hmm. they want the audience to be able to understand yeah, <laughs> the actors. They're not speaking Middle English. No, mm-hmm. but they have ways of speaking that are not modern where there's a fine line between between those things like the, the a lot of the more modern who has them speaking it, they, they sound like 21st century people mm-hmm. in in you know medieval dress whereas in this they they really do sound like they like like an older sort of 
uh, era. Um, so I really like that. I'm a big fan of Errol Flynn, swashbuckling sort of, you know, knights on horseback, mo- older movies. Mm-hmm. And this really gave me that feel. Um, mm-hmm. I, one of the first things I noticed at, as it opened on, on the feast is you know, like seeing the the wolfhounds there in the feasting hall, you know, that sort of, yeah. and it just had the atmosphere. They, they went all out and, and had this really set up to, to feel like that era, which was great. It, it feels so much more realistic than the slickness that mm-hmm. you would find on modern who in presenting the same historical period. Yeah, definitely. Um, so w- one of the things we should probably talk about up front is the uh, chameleon in the room. Oh, yeah. Uh, So this is the introduction of Chameleon, which reminds me. companion no one remembers because (laughs) he only has two appearances. Right. Now, we've talked about it before, but remind me and the listeners, uh, what was Chameleon in real life? Uh, Okay. So in real life, Chameleon was an animatronic robot. Um, it, It was designed. It was not designed for Doctor Who. Instead, the producer at the time, John Nathan Turner, discovered that someone had built this robot, and he was looking as a kind of follow-up companion for K-9, who was also a robot. K-9 had been a very successful robot companion, and he was kind of, John Nathan Turner was kind of looking for the next K-9, and he found that someone had designed this animatronic uh, work and thought, that would be great for our show. What we can do is we can have scenes with Chameleon as a robot, but because he changes form, he can then become someone else for for most of the episode, and we can have a live human actor out doing stuff. You know, you can see how that would be hel- helpful to the Doctor. You know, the Doctor may need may land on a planet and be in a tough situation where oh we really need a master of disguise we need someone to impersonate someone else to solve this problem and chameleon could play that role and then he could turn back into a robot you know when he's back in the tardis or when he's in private with the doctor and so that was the plan but uh, now not everybody on the show was fond of this idea some of the Mm. other production staff thought this is not going to work well but John Nathan Turner was big on experimenting with the show, and he wanted to do this, so they acquired the robot. Unfortunately, the guy who designed its software had two problems. His first problem was that he had not done proper documentation of the operating system, so nobody but him could could effectively control it or make changes. And his second problem was he died in a boating accident very shortly after the robot was acquired. So oh, gosh. all of his knowledge died with him. And that meant they didn't know how to use Chameleon effectively. And it also broke down a lot because this is 1980s animatronics. So it's not not super. This is not military grade <laughs> animatronics. Right. And um so they ended up using Chameleon on screen only twice. They did have a third story they filmed a scene for. Um, it was, I think it was The Awakening, but um, but they ended up not using it because the episode overran. So effectively, Chameleon appears only twice. He appears in The King's Demon, and he appears in... Um, Turlow's swan song, where Turlow leaves, Planet of Fire. 
And that's the next to last episode of The Fifth Doctor. It's the one right before the Caves of Androzani where he regenerates. It's where Turlo leaves and Perry comes in and Chameleon is killed by the Doctor. <laughs> um, because Chameleon at that point has become a liability and it Chameleon itself is begging for the Doctor to deactivate it. And the Doctor does. And so... Beyond what the sixth doctor would do in attempting to strangle Perry, the fifth doctor actually killed one of his own companions, or at least <laughs> turned it off. And according to Peter Davison, any regret you see him display at turning Chameleon off was pure acting. He was so relieved to be done with this meddlesome robot. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it just I'm, I, I get it's 1983. This is very early in anything like this. I mean, we're a long way from even the Boston dynamics robots that we have today, you know, 40 years still. So, so, and they don't themselves, they're still creepy. They're in the uncanny yep. Valley. They don't look like they don't look or move like humans. I just can't imagine like you, you could have done what the next generation did, which is have a human pretend to be a, a robot. And yeah. And then, you know, to have them just do the disguise thing, whatever. But yeah, this was just, one step too far with this it was it was yeah it was creepy whenever they showed it on the screen you could the mouth didn't move along with the you know the actual words and all that sort of stuff was kind of odd yeah that was also one of the things about the animatronic is it was sound activated so theoretically its mouth was supposed to move but it's so inarticulate it doesn't look right yeah yeah so that's Chameleon, and uh, like you said, we, we only have to uh, see it uh, one more time. <laughs> it does appear in some, uh, in like in other media, including Big Finish, mm. um, but um, but it is, it, and it it performs better when you when you when you don't have to watch it on screen. Yeah. Um, in one of the Big Finish stories, they provided an explanation for why we see Chameleon so little. On screen, there's a big finish story called the Crystal Bucephalus, Bucephalus being the horse of Alexander the Great. And in the Crystal Bucephalus, uh, Chameleon realizes. So in the King's Demon, they have this the doctor and the master have this psychic battle over him. Even though he's got a mind of his own, he can be enslaved by someone with a stronger mind. And in the Crystal Bucephalus, Chameleon realizes he's unduly influenced by strong-willed individuals and the doctor encounters a lot of those on his adventures and so chameleon decides i could become a liability to the doctor and my fellow companions so i'm just going to stay on the tardis where i'm not exposed to so many strong-willed individuals mm. well <laughs> which makes him not a very interesting companion then yeah <laughs> So speaking of companions, this is Turlo's first outing where he's not a pawn of the Black Guardian. Yeah. Um, they, he, and there's a really sly reference to that uh, at one point. Turlo has been captured and they've got him in a dungeon. And because King John has identified him as a demon, the, gar the, the guy who's got Turlo captive is, is, you know, saying he's got him chained up and and. Turlo is protesting in that Turlo-y, but I didn't do it way. <laughs> and um, and I'm not a demon. It's like, well, why can't you just get out of here then? Can't you call on hell? 
And Turlow says, well, yes, I could, but so could you. And with his fellow is also chained up, as I remember. Yeah. Um, but so could you. And with a better expectation of success, I, I wager. And that's a reference <laughs> to the fact he's he has been calling on the Black Guardian. And now the Black Guardian is on the outs of him with him with Turlow. So someone else appealing to the Black Guardian would have a better chance of success. <laughs> <laughs> So the the fellow he was talking to in the dungeon, by the way, uh, was the the son of the local lord, uh, mm-hmm. Sir Randolph's son Hugh, and he was played by Christopher Villiers, who showed up as Professor Morehouse in Mummy on the Orient Express, which mm. is kind of an interesting uh, return for him. Uh, mm-hmm. So obviously much older at that point in the Twelfth Doctor's time. Uh, so that I thought that was interesting. Yeah, Turlow was was kind of. He was separated from the doctor for most of the story. So we have mm-hmm. a little bit of doctor separation. And um, it was, I was kind of watching to see what is Turlow like on his own, like without mm-hmm. being a bad guy or a mole with a kind of being whiny. on the doctor's side. What's that? He's a little whiny. <laughs> he is. Although I have to say, Tegan's even whinier. Mm-hmm. <laughs> she, she, she's become kind of shrill and, and, complains a lot mm-hmm. well I, I don't know if it's lately or and at to the point where the doctor at one point says um fine at the end mm-hmm. fine now i'll set the coordinates for home and drop you off and kind of is puts puts her in her place a little bit yeah uh, i think because she was complaining about chameleon yeah and it it was around this i think i mentioned this in the most recent fifth doctor story we did but it was around this point that peter davison himself commented to John Nathan Turner, why would the doctor want to travel with these people? Mm. Because neither, neither, neither Tegan nor Turlow is at this point, um, buddy, buddy with the doctor. They're both, they, they both can be unpleasant. I mean, Turlow's a traitor and Tegan is a complainer. And why would the doctor want to travel with these people? So this is, um, this is them trying to address that issue. Yeah. Uh, when, when Tegan, keeps complaining the doctor puts her in her place and it's like okay you want to you you're you're tired of traveling me you don't like the way i do things i'll take you home right now and she and that catches her short and she's like but i don't want to give up traveling and she ends up saying you know they've been talking about the eye of orion and she says i want to see it please take me to the eye of orion and the doctor says okay and he walks off and she says aren't you going to reset the coordinates and he says, no, that's where I set him for. So he knew she still wanted to travel. This is his way of telling her, stop complaining so much if you want to travel. <laughs> right. Although she apparently was right about Chameleon. <laughs> she was right about Chameleon, but not by design. Not by design. Um, so the the story revolves around King John and this imposter that the that the, the the master has imposed. But by, by the way, the master's disguise as Sir Gilles. Mm-hmm. Um, I I I didn't read ahead, but I could tell it was Anthony Ainley right away. Uh-huh. <laughs> I thought they I thought they did pretty good with the physical makeup. They yeah, and this is this is back to the master's trope of appearing in disguise and mm-hmm. then being revealed, which happens multiple times by the master. I'm surprised he used chameleon. Instead of just trying to impersonate King John himself. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but he, they had physical makeup on him that altered his appearance kind of enough. When you saw it in close up, 
it, it was clear this is makeup. This looks janky. Right. But um, but at a distance, it looked OK. He also did a reason. I mean, I could still tell it was Anthony Ainley and I knew it was Anthony Ainley going in. I mean, I, yeah. I didn't re- I didn't remember when I first started watching who is the master in this. I, I knew King John was chameleon, but I very quickly spotted, oh, it's it, Gilles is his champion is is Anthony Ainley. He tries to mask his voice by speaking in a lower register and doing something approximating a French accent. <laughs> um, but uh, but it's not as obvious. It's not screamingly obvious that it's Anthony right. Ainley. But if you know Anthony Ainley, you can figure it out. Yeah, yeah. So the the story revolves around King John in Magna Carta, which mm-hmm. a British audience would be familiar with. Just like you know, if you did something about the Pilgrims here, you would people would would get it. They would know what we're talking about. Uh, but not all American uh, Americans in the audience would know Magna Carta. But it was essentially was this dispute between King John and the barons, uh, you know, the 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 lords and. Um, his imposition upon their rights and Magna Carta basically outlined the rights of the barons in the face of the king's authority. Am I on track there? Is that, is that yeah. right? Yeah, there there was a dispute between John and there was a rebellion uh, of sorts. And then um, he, he agreed to sign this document outlining the rights of the nobility vis-a-vis the rights of the king. And it was the foundation that later British parliamentary democracy would be based on, because eventually the um, the nobility forms the House of Lords. And eventually they also formed a House of Commons, you know, people who are not nobility. And today the British monarch is primarily a figurehead. And so mm-hmm. the Magna Carta was sort of the beginning of that process that allowed a form of democracy to come to England instead of the autocracy of a of of uh, that was common in in other kingdoms which was always at least in the west it, it wasn't like it was in the east where you had real autocrats Mm-hmm. Um, in the West, you you had the feudal system, which had nobility, and the nobility had rights and territories, you know, and fiefdoms. And so, the the king's power, the king, in order to get anything done, had to work with with the local nobility. Um, and this was sort of a formalizing of that arrangement. Um, whereas in some places, you the king could just do anything. In the West, in the West, in Western regions, the king was more restrained because he had to work with the nobility that was part of the feudal system. A few years ago, I actually got to see one of the original copies of Magna Carta Mm. here in Boston. It was at the Museum of Fine Arts in Boston. That was Uh a really, really cool thing to get to do. I hope we loaned them some tea leaves in exchange. (laughs) I think we had a few boxes laying around in the harbor we could send back. Yeah. (laughs) Nice salty tea. (laughs) Yes. Uh, Tegan also makes a reference to uh, something like a bit of a pun that I had to look up. And she Mm. talked about um, King John lost something in the wash. So I looked it up and it was an event. The wash is actually a large tidal basin in Norfolk. And there's a legend that he lost the crown jewels there while he was crossing Mm. through the basin. So he got lost in the wash is a sort of a a little bit of a pun there. So I thought that was interesting. 
It was interesting also how the doctor rehabilitates King John in this episode, because he does have this negative reputation. Mm-hmm. You know, his, his, he first came to the throne when his brother Richard II was off crusading, and he's remembered as the guy that, you know, had to sign, that was so bad that the Lords imposed the Magna Carta on him. And that he's also the guy in the stories that persecutes Robin Hood. Yeah. And so he's got this bad rep, but the doctor is like, yeah, compared to others in his time, he was actually okay. He could have put down the rebellion. He was as much as in favor of Magna Carta as anybody. And so um, it's it's nice to see that kind of rehabilitation happening on the show. It's a, It represents the writer's whether you agree or not, it it represents the writers trying to take a more nuanced approach that uses critical thinking in thinking about historical figures instead of just running with and exaggerating any stereotypes you can think of for historical figures like the 13th Doctor's treatment of James I. Right. Yeah. And, and it does, in this story, create that contrast between the behavior of the imposter King John Versus what everyone says the in the doctor says the the real King John is actually like, and that's why when Lord Ranulf kind of objects to you've taken all of my wealth and now you want to take even more, you know the, the mm-hmm. it's 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 seen as a contrast to like I, I think it one at the beginning it sort of plays on the stereotype yeah that we have and then undermines it going yeah. on which I think is a nice dramatic effect because it becomes evidence the the imposter king john is behaving like the cartoon version of king john that people have in mind and so it it becomes evidence that this guy's a fake yes also um i i do like the performance of the actor who's playing king john and the voice of chameleon um and he has a even though he's he in some scenes he's a bully in other scenes he comes across he's a very suave bully mm-hmm. you know he's not he's not a shouty bully <laughs> um he's very suave about what he's doing and he has a certain kind of charm and he seems very amused now the reason that that it's called the king's demons is because the tardis materializes in the middle of this joust and everybody sees it materialize. And the only explanation people can think of is that must be diabolical. Things just don't materialize. And so the Dr. Tegan and Turlo get out and, and King John is, ah, our demons come over, sit by me, let us watch this joust together and and so forth. And he has he does have this kind of charm, you know, when he um when when the they're doing introductions. Uh, he he looks at Tegan and says, "Can this be Lilith? You know, mm-hmm. who is a demon and and sometime wife of Adam in Jewish mythology." And um, and that provides the doctor the opportunity to tell them tell them their names. But it's it it's it's nicely done, and I like how he's not at all threatened by these demons. Right now, of course, within the story, the that's probably because the master. Uh, the not probably because the master does recognize the mm-hmm. doctor he he probably has chameleon welcoming them because hey yeah. now i can introduce the doctor into my plot there's there's even a line that the master says is sergile who is participating in the joust he's the he's the king's champion and when the tardis materializes it startles the horses 
and that kind of brings the joust to an end for the moment. And the uh, the master, as Sir Gilles says, I need no help from the infernal region. Mm. And it's immediately after that that Chameleon starts to be friendly to the doctor. So I, I, I kind of interpreted that as a sort of signal to, to, to Chameleon. Right, right. The doctor also plays because he's now being buddy-buddy with the phony King John. And at a couple of times, he intervenes to save people's lives. Mm-hmm. And, and he's really sly about how he does it in the writing because he'll object and, you know, your majesty, may I make a suggestion? And both times the, the doctor is asked, are you wanting to, you know, show mercy for this reason? Is it just you're a bleeding heart liberal um, who doesn't really want to see justice done or honor satisfied or whatever it is? And he's able to deflect that. And come back with a, another reason for not killing the person that makes sense in the cultural context. Mm. Um, like at one point, and there is, okay, so despite the praise I've given the writers for trying to be historically faithful in this episode, there is a major departure, which is they've got an Iron Maiden. Yeah. And Iron Maidens were not things. This was a later legend. Mm-hmm. Now, it's nice that the Iron Maiden is also the master's TARDIS. So <laughs> yes. when the master gets shoved into the Iron Maiden and they close it on him, it dematerializes. <laughs> um, so if you're going to have an Iron Maiden, that's the way to do it. But having an Iron Maiden is a historical inaccuracy. But th- when when the one of the times where the doctor is trying to intervene is to save the master who has revealed himself from being shoved into the Iron Maiden and killed. And he says it would be for such an insult, it would be so much better to do boiling in oil. And this pe- so he's not proposing we don't kill him. He's proposing we do it another way that is going to take forever Because (laughs) if you've got a pot of cold oil, a cauldron of cold oil, and you've got to heat it up to scalding temperature, that's going to take a long time. And that will give the doctor time Mm. to find another way to resolve the situation. So it's a desperate delaying tactic rather than an outright let's kill him that way. Why is the doctor so reticent to putting the the master in? In the Iron Maiden. I mean, was the Iron Maiden that bad? I mean, was it just a small confined space? No, it's got spikes. It's uh. they close it on you. That's why they're talking about people being embraced by the Iron Maiden. They close those doors on you and you're impaled alive at multiple points in your body. Oh, because I didn't see the spikes in this one. I just. Yeah. yeah. Well, it wouldn't be an Iron Maiden without them. They they apparently have them on the doors. Okay. In this one, instead of normally you'd be surrounded by them, but um, but that's an affectation of this already historically inaccurate Iron Maiden. Gotcha, gotcha. Um, so the uh, the the master's devious plan is to use the doctor to defame the king. Mm-hmm. So can he kind of flips everything around. At one point, the doctor is the demon. Then the king makes him his champion when he defeats the master. And it's some nice swordplay by Peter Davison, who's apparently uh, a good stage swordsman. Um, that's what I read. And uh, 
and and thus he's going to use that to turn everybody against the doctor and the king um when they, in fact at one point Sir Ranulf is like on both sides. At one point, it's he's yeah. opposed to the king. Then the next point, he's with the king, and it's a very strange flipping around of things. There's a there's a great scene where the Doctor gets to sword fight with um with Sir Gilles, not yet knowing he's the master, and and the king has this great line where he says he is said to be the best swordsman in France, and the Doctor says, and well, fortunately, we are in England. and he doesn't name drop anybody like well i was taught the sword by this famous swordsman from some other century yes yes that is that is good it was a very princess bride sort of moment i I felt like that (laughs) that, Mm -hmm. the line um so um trying to think of anything else we wanted to talk about here this this uh, the Mm -hmm. introduction of sir jeffrey who they're apparently a four-hour ride from London, and Sir Geoffrey, who's the cousin of Sir Renolf, has just arrived from London where he left the king's presence to find the king here ahead of him, and this could potentially unravel the master's uh, plan. And so they, he arranges to have, well, first to have him thrown into the dungeon, and then as Sir Geoffrey is riding away to go warn the king, has a uh, a crossbowman who's quite a marksman shoot him in the back from the tower, um, and 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 then blame it on the the doctor in Turlow, I think specifically. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's this whole sequence of of these other people. So I kind of like the fact that they they kind of account for this. Like, wouldn't anyone come from London? Would it? You know, how would we? Wouldn't they know that the king was still there and that sort of stuff? So I I, I felt like they had that part of the story kind of covered in a sense. So it was kind of well-written in that sense. Mm-hmm. The, another thing that they do, I like the moment of the reveal of the master because as he's fighting, sword fighting with the doctor, he pulls out his tissue compression eliminator mm-hmm. and the doctor knows immediately what that is. And the doc, cause he's seen it before. And so has Tegan, who's also witnessing this. I mean, her auntie Vanessa got, tissue compression eliminated right and um and he the master then like turns off he doesn't rip off a mask he this is apparently some kind of hologram but he turns off the hologram and you can see it's anthony ainley cackling evilly and nobody notices the doctor and Tegan <laughs> notice, and no one else notices Sir Gilles has just totally changed his appearance. That's true. And it's like, okay, that's a little bit of a writing flaw you'd want to take care of. There's another one later where the doctor has convinced Ranulf that the and 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 his and Ranulf's cousin Geoffrey has confirmed the real King John is in London right now, and this guy is an imposter. But then Ranulph forgets that this is an imposter and sides against the doctor with the fake imposter. And it's like, uh, why are you trusting the guy you know to be a fake? Right. Why are you serving him? Um, so in the back half of the story, there's some things that they could have, I mean, you could fix those, but they didn't. And yeah, they needed a little extra script work. Yep. So any other notes on this episode, Jimmy? Uh, let's see. Uh, Tegan gets to operate the TARDIS. Oh, yeah. She yeah. she didn't know how to set the coordinates, but the doctor told her they'd already been set, and she's able to fly it, which is nice to see. We also get um, 
a little bit of information about Chameleon's origin. The Master did not make Chameleon. The Master's previous appearance was in the awful episode or story, Time Flight, which involved Xerophens, people from the planet Xerophas, and and the Master was like, I forget exactly, but like trying to get Xerophon technology. And Chameleon was built by someone who had invaded Xerophas. So he's an alien robot. And the master says he's controlled by simple concentration and psychokinetics. So apparently the doctor and the master not only have telepathy, they've got PK. <laughs> right. <laughs> They're able to can control Chameleon if using PK. Um, Chameleon does have a mind of his own. Uh, the psychic battle is, yeah, it's okay. I like that, um, as often when, when the doctor is doing something psychic on the show, they, or when you have more than one time Lord doing something psychic, they rapidly juxtapose faces. Mm. And so they do that as like, that's the contact moment when the doctor's incarnations will have a telepathic conference. And they do something similar as the master and the doctor are battling over chameleon. Um, I like that they 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 note that Turlo, who has been separated from the doctor for most of the story, does not uh, know who the master is. Tegan knows because the master was was around in her introduction story and she's met him in time flight. Um, so she is aware of who the master is, but Turlo doesn't know. And at the end of the episode, as he's backing into the TARDIS, you know, the doctor and Tegan and Chameleon have already, Tegan's already in the TARDIS. The doctor and Chameleon have just gone into it and Turlo's kind of guarding their rear flank, you know, with a sword. And he says to the master, like, whoever the hell you are, I'm, I'm not going to let you in. (laughs) And so the, they acknowledge this is Turlo's introduction to the master and we get another reference to the allegedly beautiful Eye of Orion, which they yes. will actually go to in the next story, The Five Doctors. It starts with the fifth Doctor, Tegan and Turlow, enjoying the Eye of Orion. And this is, I didn't mention it, but this is the last story of season 20, which is presumably why the next story is The the Five Doctors. It's technically takes place between season 20 and season 21, Mm-hmm. Um, so it's still so because the, they do these multiple doctor stories for the big anniversaries. Right. Although, is this the last multiple doctor story before in uh, New Who? No, not in the classic period. There's one more and we've oh, already done it. It's the two right. doctors with the second and the sixth doctor. That's right. And that'll be the 25th anniversary. Also, I think the worst of I don't think that's a 25th anniversary. The 25th anniversary is Silver Nemesis. That was just oh, one they threw right. in, just because oh, okay. Patrick Troughton was available. Right. Unfortunately, I think it's also probably the it may be the worst scripted of them, despite how much I love Patrick Troughton. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it was great to see Jamie and mm-hmm. and Patrick Troughton. Part, parts of it are good. Yeah. Um, but they have the second Doctor co-opted by Androgum genes or something, and he spends much of the plot being a comedic gustatory parody of himself yeah yeah i know unfortunate but, but par for the course of the six doctors time unfortunately um 
All right. So I think that does it for this time. So we would like to take a moment to thank our patrons who make it possible for us to create the secrets of Doctor Who, including Dante V, Carolyn K, Jeremy N, Wendy T and Paul B. Their generous donations at sqpn.com slash give make it possible for us to continue the secrets of Doctor Who and all the shows at StarQuest. And you can join them by visiting sqpn.com slash give. And we'd also like to thank Simon Yannick for who edited this episode. That's it from us. What did you think of the fifth Doctor story, The King's Demons? You can let us know by commenting on the show at sqpn.com or the Secrets of Doctor Who Facebook page or send an email to Who at sqpn.com or visit the StarQuest Discord community at sqpn.com slash discord. You can watch The Secrets of Doctor Who in video on our YouTube channel at youtube.com slash starquestmedia. And we'll be back next time when we'll be discussing the 12th Doctor story, The Zygon Invasion. Until then, Jimmy Aiken, thank you for joining me and sharing The Secrets of Doctor Who. Thank you, Dom. And once again, I'm Dom Bettinelli. Thank you for listening to The Secrets of Doctor Who on StarQuest. And remember, put him in the Iron Maiden. Excellent. Excellent.